So I mentioned, uh, well, let's pray for our prayer for illumination, then we'll jump into Scripture. Will you pray for me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. All right, so uh, I'm going to, I'll take it from here, Chris, on, on the sermon side of things. Thank you. Um, so... Today we're going to be talking about Jesus' testing in the wilderness, and I wanted to give you some sense of the environment that Jesus, that this story is taking place. Here is a picture from Wikipedia of the Judean wilderness, and you can see it's not very hospitable. Uh, and a little, a few things about the wilderness, we're going to talk about it later, but this is a story that really takes place in something that, to my mind, looks almost like another planet, like what Mars would look like, except for not red or something like that. So it's, a, it's truly a story outside of where our typical experience would. Today, uh, scripture, though, I have highlighted and added a bunch of notations because this scripture, more than most, is heavily reliant on what you already know about the Old Testament to understand. Um, we typically think of this in terms of Jesus saying no to sin and saying yes to God or saying no to temptation as we typically experience it. And that's why I'm going to use the word testing here, which is another way of translating this, to kind of get to what is really at stake here. Uh, because there's a lot of Old Testament references in it, I've highlighted some, and we don't do this often, but I'm going to really kind of just go through the scripture and talk about what all of these things mean and hope to bring out some really deeper reflections on what, on who Jesus is and, and why that matters in your life. And so I will read this and then we're going to kind of go back uh, to it again. Jesus tested in the wilderness from Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tester came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So I'm going to go back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that happens in the way that we do church is that sometimes we'll preach on something and it will feel like an isolated part of the story, like this is an individual story. But 
that's one of the reasons in this series through Matthew, I'm going through the book pretty much just event after event to try to help see how these things link together and to delve a little bit deeper into their significance. Because even though you can understand aspects of it when they're sort of pulled out alone, it's really helpful to see it within what is going on in this story. So last week, we read the passage just preceding this passage, and that was the baptism of Jesus. Now, you may or may not remember that the very last part of the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and tells Jesus, or in a voice says, this is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. This endorsement of Jesus as God's son and God's love and, and, and Jesus pleasing God, this incredible moment of God's love shown. So it is that Holy Spirit that descended on Jesus in his baptism in the river of Jordan, that he is now led by into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is who leads him into the wilderness. Now the wilderness, as I said, is a very stark landscape, very inhospitable to life, especially just for someone wandering out there. But the wilderness is also something that had a lot of significance. It had significance for people of Jesus' day, even if they weren't Jewish. The wildernesses of this area were considered to, to be dangerous places, sort of outside of the civilizing touches, so to speak. So you might find bandits in the wilderness. You know, this is the, for Chip here, this is the most Isley of the, of the kind of surrounding areas if you don't want to go out there. And then, the dunes again, great. Uh, and then, uh, they also believed that there were evil spirits, demons, out there. And so, to go out into the desert was to invite difficulty, to go out into the wilderness. But then, and I think this is more, more central to the theme of this scripture, the wilderness also played an important role in Jewish theology. Jesus is, of course, Jewish, he's a Hebrew, and part of the foundational story of the Hebrew people is that they were taken from Egypt, led by Moses, through 40 years in the desert. 40, wait, there's a number there. And then they were led to the promised land. But in that desert time, or in that wilderness time, a lot of really important things happen. The law is given, Mount Sinai. But also, again and again, God provides for their people, his people, even though again and again throughout the wilderness experience, the Hebrew people basically fail. Whenever things get tough, they tend to turn from God. So, if you are a Jewish person hearing this story for the first time. When the Holy Spirit leads to the wilderness, you have all of this in the back of your mind about how the wilderness is where we did not follow God like we should have. The wilderness is a place where bad things happen. But Jesus may have been thinking of 
something else here. In the book of Deuteronomy, which has a very long set of passages of basically Moses talking to the Hebrew people before they enter the promised land. And he tells them to remember the wilderness. And this is how he says, he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way through the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you so that in order that you would know, in order that what was in, to know what was in your heart and whether you would know his commandments. So he was leading through the wilderness so that they would be humbled and tested and so that their heart would be known. So Jesus is in this very pregnant situation. And it's amazing for us to think that the Holy Spirit, after the spiritual high of baptism, after he has said, I love you and I and in you I'm well pleased, would lead him out into this place to be tested, into this wilderness. I don't know about you. But when one thinks of one who is beloved by God, that God would lead them into a place of suffering. What is that? And how do we understand what it is to be a Christian that, because we're going to get into this, that just doesn't seem to jive with what a lot of us think about what our faith is. So Jesus is in this wilderness experience, and he fasts. That's a spiritual practice. It says he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and if you are someone who reads the Bible, you might be like, what's up with 40 days and 40 nights? It's just always 40 days and 40 nights, and that's actually because it's just a phrase that means a pretty long time. So they use 40 a lot to mean a pretty long time, a bounded time, but a long time. So he fasts for a long time, and this is key, he is hungry. Sometimes when we imagine Jesus, we imagine this guy who sort of like floats through life, half spirit, half human, who does not encounter the things that we encounter. And so we will, you might imagine that, well, he's Jesus, so he can be out there fasting, and it's no big deal for him. But we are told he is suffering. He is hungry. And as Sarah said, he's starving. And few of us know what that's really like. But, you know, I just get a little bit hungry and I get panicky. You know, it would be quite a different thing. And so it's into this place, this strange place, where the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into this wilderness that is part of this long story of the Hebrew people and, and seems to represent something that, that he comes and the devil comes. And one of the things that I put here is the, the, the tempter uh, or tester. Those are both ways to translate that. The devil, when the word devil is used, that's the word that it's talking about. A tempter or a tester. That's one of the roles of the devil in that, beyond, uh, that time was someone who was testing or something that was testing the faith. And so this tester, the devil shows up and, and there's three different temptations which we've color-coded here and kind of broken apart that Jesus goes through. And 
I don't normally do this, but I actually gave them all words that start with a P, so it'd be a little bit easy to remember, and these are in your outline. But the first thing that he does is he comes and says, if you are the Son of God, remember he has just been called the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Not unlike some of the miracles where water comes out of stone and manna falls from heaven, that Moses did, so he says, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God, from the mouth of God. This first one is about God's provision. And what I mean by that, it's about trusting that God gives us enough. Trusting that God gives us enough. Jesus quotes, when the devil asks him this, he quotes from that very passage I read in Deuteronomy, just the next verse, about how we don't live on bread alone, that what is enough for us is God and God's words. And in some sense, he's saying, and this is hard, It's all right that I'm suffering. It's all right that I am uh, deprived. That God doesn't want that I have everything that I want at this moment. There is something here. Part of the reason he's doing this, of course, is that, that, he, that Jesus wants to, he's testing Jesus. Is Jesus going to be able to live into this kind of thing where not having what you want and trusting in God's provision is going to be fundamental to him? And you think about Jesus' message, the one who tells us not to worry, the one who goes to the cross and says, you will follow me. And on that cross, it's not a rosy time. This is suffering. saying, if you want to do what you need to do, Jesus, you're going to have to be able to deal with this. You see, I think a lot of us have an unconscious agreement with God, whether we, we admit this or not. And it's this. It's, if I do the right thing, live the right way, or at least live better than most of the people I see around me, you're going to keep me away from suffering. You're going to put a bubble around me, a hedge of protection, as we call it in the Christian world. And I'm not going to experience this crazy world going to be deprived. And there's a lot of Christian churches that will tell you that God does not want you to be deprived in any way. But here is Jesus in that place saying it is only God that I need. 
And so he's staying true to the mission that he is going to have to do and where he leads us to do as well. Jesus trusts in God's provision that, that God will guide him through. The second test he has here, and this comes, the devil comes and takes him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. Now, I debated about how much I would go into this, and I won't go into it a lot, but the highest point of the temple, this is the symbolic of kind of the, 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 um, the center of this whole thing. And if you know anything about the Jewish temple, you would know that it kind of gets, the structure gets holier and holier and holier as it comes in to the holiest of holies. So he's taking him to the place that is sort of the holiest place. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up your hands so that you will not strike a stone. Your feet will not strike a stone. The devil is doing what Christians also love to do, which is called proof texting. He's taking a passage out of the context that it's written and saying, this is what it must mean for you. What he doesn't tell him is that's from uh, Psalm, I think, 93, that before that, there is a passage about how we find refuge only in God. But what he's really doing is testing his pride. He's taking him to this place, this high point where, in some sense, the highest point of the temple representing this idea that, that if you are the Holy One, if God loves you so much, and you're so special that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon you, and you're so beloved by God, doesn't that mean that he's not going to let anything happen? Probably no one in human history has had a better claim to being special than Jesus. And yet, he does not, as it says later, he does not see this as something to be exploited. He doesn't exploit this. Instead, it is humility that it comes from him, and he, he, he talks about this in, in just this Passage here, he says, it is also written, do not put your Lord God to a test. Also from Deuteronomy, the same speech of Moses where he says, like, look, this isn't about me. It's about God. And that's not what I'm going to be about. And just imagine what was really at stake here in Jesus' mission. Jesus is here to save sinners. That's what it talks about, the very, that his name means to save sinners. In the first part of Matthew, it's Matthew's way of saying, this is what Jesus is here to do. And if Jesus is here to save sinners, but he's a spiritually prideful person who doesn't want sinners anywhere near, who wants all the attention and all this to be considered and lifted up on high, then he's not going to do any of the things that Christ actually comes to do. To be a Christian and to really embrace the unmerited grace and love of God means that we really have to believe in the unmerited grace and love of God. And if that's what we believe, if that's what's fundamental to our faith, then there are no special people. It's no one that should be lifted up higher as God's loves just a little bit more than everybody else. 
that spiritual pride, it's a tough one. Because even though I don't think we would all be called narcissists or something, we all kind of think, you know, little special case. Some of you may feel like you're a special case and, you know, God has blessed you for some unknown reason. Or, or maybe you might think the opposite. You might think you're a special case because it just seems like things don't work out for you. But in some way, kind of, God is relating to you different than everybody else. When we begin to believe that, then our ability to empathize with others, to be there for the broken, to call sinners, to know what it is to be broken ourselves, and then all of that is at stake. But Jesus remains humble. Jesus sees this moment for what it truly is and stays focused on God's unmerited love, even of sinners. And the third one is perhaps the most straightforward one. Again, the devil, the tempter, the pester, took him to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, Away from me, Satan. He uses a different word. Satan comes out of Job. It's the idea of an accuser, someone who's, it's more than just sort of testing. It's the prosecutor, right? So this accuser, and he says, for it is written, worship only the Lord your God and serve him. Jesus, in some sense here, is being tested as well, obviously if he is going to put his own desires over that of God. And that's why this is a temptation of the first one being provision, the second one being pride, this one being power. The test, how will Jesus act if he is offered power? Jesus contrasts that power in an interesting way because the devil is offering him to be kind of king of all of these things, which we know Jesus is already. But by worshiping and serving, he's trying to say, I'm going to move you off mission. And one of the things that this power is, is that if you're going to rule all these kingdoms, and you would have control over all these kingdoms. And I think in some ways, that's where we can find some entry into this temptation in particular. This desire to To not let God be in control. That's a hard one, really. That's a tough, tough, tough one. I mean, over the last two years, when our lives have felt very out of control, has anyone been, like, happy about that? Has anyone been like, you know what? I hate having some idea what the future brings. I hate security, I hate all of those things. No, that's not how most of us have experienced it. It's because, especially in our culture, especially those of us who live at the relative top of humanity, believe that we should have some power and agency and control over things in our life, at least. 
And so that's sort of what is being tested here. But of course, Jesus is called to a different form of power. He's called to a kingship that is brought on by him going to the cross. He is called to serve, it says. The Son of Man comes to serve, not lord over. That what do you do when you are in this wilderness, you are in this place where you don't know what to do? Instead of trying to control, you try to serve. You seek what God's mission for the sinners and the brokenhearted and the broken people are in this place. That, that that's how he responds and will respond because he is going to be in the crucible of it from this time all the way through the rest of his ministry. He is going to be tested. He is going to be abandoned. Everything is going to happen. This is just the beginning, a preview of what the life that he will lead is. And it begins with this test of which he tells him again from Deuteronomy, I'm going to stay focused on my mission because I know who God, God is. Provision, pride, Power. I, I think if we are honest, we can see ourselves in all of these things. I know I have. I have come up against these tests and failed them on many occasions. And yet, just as we are united to Christ in his baptism, which we talked about last week, we are united to Christ in this. He says to follow him is to lose our life in order to gain it. We are part of this. We expect this. This is what we're here for. Christians are not made to kind of hang out around. We are made for the wilderness. We are made to stay true to who God has called us to be in difficult times. That's what all this is about. That's what your faith is being refined for. Secret. It's always difficult. There's always the temptation to move into places of fear. Because that's where a lot of these temptations really start. There's always a test before us. Do we respond with faith or fear? Do we trust in God's love or do we not? But we are made for this wilderness moment. I imagine many of you in this room are in some sort of wilderness. And if you're not now, you have been. And you will be. It's hard to live in those wildernesses where, where no one wants to be. To lose someone you love. To lose a job. To, to not know what your future brings. To deal with medical things. To lose relationships. To be in these places where the world seems upside down. Where, where we can't imagine what to do there. 
where we have every excuse to become fearful and bitter and angry. We have this example. We have this way shower, this chain breaker who shows us that in this we can follow him. Your faith can lead you through this. What he has done, we can follow him through. So if you find yourself in this, in a wilderness of sorts, if you are wondering if you have the strength, turn your eyes to him.